All right, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the uh, text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, if you're watching us online, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that part of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we like giving them away around here. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Uh, and I'll tell you about them at some other time. I've told you about them before. Um, so if you don't have a Bible of your own, let me know and uh, we can fix that. We think God will use it in a big way. Uh, so we have made it to week 16 now of an effort to walk through uh, the letter that we call First Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a very young church in the Greek city of Corinth. We think it was written probably somewhere between uh, 53 and 55 AD while Paul was uh, hanging out in Ephesus doing other work. And, and it's a church that Paul absolutely loves dearly. He's got a long connection with them. He helped to start the church in Corinth. Uh, he had since moved away from there after about a year and a half to go uh, start churches in other places, but he still was connected to the people there. Uh, and, and he had written several letters back and forth. Uh, this letter that we call 1 Corinthians uh, has, has actually been something we've been dropped into the middle of this longer back and forth dialogue about these issues. And so uh, this isn't the first word of, of what's been going on. But Paul loves them and he continues to press in and engage the Corinthians. Uh, and honestly, despite the Corinthians' inability to get it figured out. All right? uh, they're, they're just kind of a mess. In fact, they're kind of a giant mess. And all of that mess kind of stems from a, a deep-seated pride, an overinflation of ego that, that saw them to uh, mistreat and, and mal-use, whatever words you want to go with, uh, all kinds of things in the life and the leadership of the church. Um, and so Paul's effort to engage them and the shape of his engagement has really been what has shaped the way that we have approached this letter. Uh, we got the artwork there. Garrett worked on that beautifully upside down. Uh, Paul is going to uh, repeatedly come back to this idea that God's kingdom is entirely upside down, upside down in every possible way from all of the other competing kingdoms of this world. But not only upside down, it's upside down, upside down on purpose. It's upside down intentionally so. God has intentionally designed his kingdom to be confounding to all those who are not currently in his kingdom. Now, why in the world would such a smart God do such a thing? Right? Like if you were to come up with a, a good kingdom and you were to pitch it to, to all your friends and hope that they would you know, want to be a part of that, like are you going to make the same decisions that God has made? I'll just be honest. I don't think I would. I got some ideas about how to rule a kingdom, and, and every single one of those ideas makes a big old deal out of me, right? You any different? Why would God create a kingdom that's so intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world? Well, for a number of reasons, actually. One, because his kingdom is the only one that's not stained by sin. The only one. It may, it may look upside down to us, but really it's the only kingdom out there that's truly right side up. The only one. It, it, it values different things. It celebrates different things. But if we were to really, really pay attention to stuff that, that, that we, it, it's all stuff that we deeply kind of understand ought to be valued and celebrated. Ought to be valued and celebrated. Sin is wrecked us to our very core, but we're still image bearers who have been created to find our rest in his otherworldly kingdom. Another reason why God's kingdom is intentionally upside down is because, well, he's, he's left no room for 
us to boast. In fact, he tells us that multiple times throughout the, the, the New Testament letters. Rather, rather than giving us some religious pathway toward enlightenment, rather than giving us some kind of intellectual puzzle to, to unlock the code and put all the pieces together, entrance into God's kingdom can only ever come through hearts that have been changed by him to love him deeply and walk in relationship with him. So for those of us who, by God's grace, have been brought into his good by nothing of our own doing, but by, by, by his grace alone. Those of us who have been brought into his good kingdom, these, these kingdom realities are always going to feel otherworldly to us. They're always going to feel just a little bit foreign and just a little bit backwards, and they're going to prick us in, in specific ways. And, and there's going to be moments where I'm not really sure that I want to buy into the logic of his upside-down kingdom. Or am I the only one who has moments like that when I'm reading the Bible? In fact, those moments come often for me sometimes. So whenever we find ourselves in the middle of these two kingdoms in dissonance, whenever we reach that moment of, I'm not sure I want to buy into what God is selling here, the question that we've been training ourselves, disciplining ourselves to ask is, okay, 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 but is it, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, well, then dissonance is only temporary. And furthermore, the one who is building this otherworldly kingdom is trustworthy and good. So we'll be okay, right? So we've covered a number of different issues so far. We made it to chapter 10 now. You ready to see what Paul has in store for us today? It's the good stuff. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I'm going to call a time out there. All right, so just like the beginning of last week, uh, Paul kind of launches into a paragraph here that I think it's really, really easy to get bogged down into, right? Like, like, Like he's talking about passing through clouds in the sea. Folks are getting baptized into Moses. There's, there's a strange rock following people around. So what in the world do you do with that? Right? Anybody read that and go, yeah, I got it. Paul's referencing Old Testament history here, specifically uh, Israel's time in the wilderness, right? Um, whether you have much of a church background or not, you probably still have heard most of those Stories like the Israelites escaped Egypt, right? Maybe you watched it in a Charlton Heston movie once, but they, they escape Egypt by passing through what? The sea, the Red Sea. After that, they're led by a pillar of cloud and by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's such a like, I've, have you ever seen some, some artwork of that, that moment? It's such an incredible sight to behold, right? They're, they're fed by food that God provides for them, manna that they just pick up off the ground every morning. They all ate the same spiritual food. Miraculous moment after miraculous moment. The, the two stories that you might not be as familiar with, if you don't have much of a church background, is, uh, might not have the same level of familiarity with, is, is, is that they're also given water to drink from, that flows from a rock. 
There, there are two different stories, 40 years apart in, in Israel's wilderness wandering. Uh, one at the beginning of their time in the wilderness and one at the end of their time in the wilderness where the, the Israelites are complaining to God that they don't have anything to drink. And, and God instructs Moses in the first story to, to what? Those of you who know the story. He's got a stick and he's supposed to hit it, right? And he strikes the, the rock with a stick and water comes gushing out. It's the best water they ever had, right? It's good water. And then later on, at the end of their wilderness wandering, that, that happens again. They're complaining about not having any water. And, and so what does God tell Moses to do that time? Speak it. Don't hit it. Speak to it. And what does Moses do? He hits it. He's a moron. All right. So <laughs> Moses gets in lots of trouble. It's one of the reasons he can't go into the promised land. All right. And so two bookend stories uh, in the wilderness wanderings of God providing, again, in an incredibly miraculous way. Water still comes gushing out. And, and because you have mysterious rock that seems to be in both locations, right, it would have been a rabbinic tradition during Paul's day for them to argue, well, the rock must have followed them around. Which, I'll admit, sounds a little weird. But so far, we've covered them going through the Red Sea and eating food off the ground every morning and being led by a pillar of fire cloud, whatever that looks like. Think God's got this one? We're going we're gonna to argue that that's too hard for him to do? And so Paul points to that rock, and if you notice in the text, he gives it a capital R. He says that the rock was Christ. Oh, but wait a minute, Jesus wasn't around yet. Like, I remember that story. I don't know much about the Bible, but I read that story every Christmas. Jesus wasn't around yet. Well, you're right. Jesus wasn't. The eternal Son of God, though, was. He hadn't put on flesh yet, but the pre-incarnate eternal Son of God has always been around. He has always been active and actively working through covenant history. Always. Paul argues that that rock in the wilderness must have been Christ providing for the people of God like Christ so often provides for the people of God. Story after story, the message is crystal clear. God protected his people and provided for his people in miraculous way after miraculous way. And there are two things of note that we need to pay attention to here. One, th these weren't minor events that only affected a handful of people. Right? These weren't, these weren't fringe stories that a couple of people benefited from uh, uh, on the edge of this larger wilderness narrative of the Israelite people going through the desert. Right? This wasn't one family experiencing good things. This was a nation of people benefiting from the hand of God to provide and protect them. Right? The second thing that we, of note that we need to pay attention to is that Paul connects a largely Gentile Corinthian audience to the spiritual heritage of the Israelites. He, he doesn't say, there's this story in the Jewish scriptures that you really ought to hear about. I think you might benefit from it. He says, our fathers. Our fathers experienced these things. Paul makes it clear here that this isn't just a Jewish story this is a God's people story. This is what God does for his people. 
But even though there are lots and lots of people that were blessed by God, they were carried along and cared for by God's miraculous hand. The story shifts in verse 5 when Paul says this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So even though the entire nation got to witness God at work, and even though the entire nation benefited from God's blessing, not everybody in Israel was a part of the spiritual family, were they? In fact, very few of the people who escaped out of Egypt made it into the promised land. You can count them on one hand. Very few of the people who actually escaped out of Egypt made it into the promised land. Stop stop and think for a moment about what they saw. Stop and think for a moment about about what they saw. Like, like maybe it's easy to forget the Red Sea. Like, it was a gigantic deal, but it was a one-time thing, and then they walked away from it. And, like, like I've been guilty of that, right? I've had incredible things that God has done in my life that, that, that I've forgotten about because the circumstances of the moment caused me to forget about what God had done in the past, right? Have you been there? I've definitely been there. And so even though it was an incredible deal, it's kind of okay. It kind of makes sense that they would forget about the, the Red Sea, right? right? Uh, and so I've gotten caught up in those kind of circumstances before. I'm guilty. Same is true with the water from the rock. It happened, it happened at the beginning of their time, and then it happened like generation later. And so it was a kind of a one-time deal, right? And so I don't, maybe not everybody in the nation got to see that weird rock following them around, whatever the case is. But, but then there's the stuff that was happening daily, right? There was the stuff that they saw every single day. They literally walked out the tent every morning to collect their breakfast. They, they were led by a pillar of cloud and fire. Like you look at that situation and go, how could they have, how could they have, how could they have not trusted him? How could they have possibly forgotten all the great things that their God had done for them? And Hebrews 3 actually answers the question for us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.19 says that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Their unbelief? Are you kidding me? See, regardless of whatever they had consistently seen from God's hand, they still failed to trust him. They still failed to trust him, despite his goodness being repeatedly shown to them again and again and again. Literally day after day, they didn't believe he was good. Just goes to show us that being witness to a bunch of impressive religious moments isn't the same thing as a heart that's been changed by God to love him. It's not the same thing at all, actually. There are lots and lots of people in our world who are more than happy to to live forever off of the blessings of God, but who don't actually want anything to do with him. Lots of people, apparently. It's a tragic story in the wilderness. This is just as tragic of a story today, which is why in verse 6, Paul says this. Now, these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the, by the destroyer. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. All right, so not only were the wilderness wanderings full of opportunity after opportunity to watch God faithfully provide, but they were also full of example after example example after, sadly, example of Israel completely blowing it, right? To know, to know your Bible at all is to not just know the miraculous things that God has done, it's to know how terrible of a receiver Israel was to those miracles. Th- those things that Paul lists here, all things Israel did while in the wilderness, they chased after foreign gods and practiced idolatries. That, that, that happened in Exodus 32 with the golden calf, like before the law even made it down the mountain all the way. They're messing that one up. Far from the only time that happened, it also happened in Numbers 25, if you're familiar with that story. In that one, the Israelites started uniting themselves in sexual immorality with the women of the pagan tribes around them and and. When that happened, it quickly led to idolatry. But happy wife, happy life, right? Terrible sin. In Numbers 21, we're told that they openly challenged God and put him to the test. Like, you've got to be an extra special version of dense to think that one's going to play out in your favor. I think it's going to go well for you in that moment. But here's the thing, though. They, they, they really were that dense. They really were that dense because every Sunday school knows every Sunday school kid knows the story of the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. Over and over again, you hear that same refrain: "They grumbled." It's hot. I'm thirsty. When are we gonna When are we gonna have meat again? I'm so tired of eating whatever this stuff is on the ground. Day after day, year after year, they grumbled. And it's tempting, at least it is for me, to, to, to hear that kind of nonsense and scoff and go, oh, those silly little Israelites just can't get out of their own way, right? Well, Paul here says that God preserved those stories so that we don't fall victim to them in the same way that they did. That God has given us those stories for us. The, the ancient failures of Israel are not merely problems that we moderns don't have to, to, to worry about. In fact, they're the same problems that we face today. We, we don't escape their, their failures because we, we've got things figured out that they couldn't get figured out. We're not smarter than them. We're not any stronger than them. But, but God understands the weakness of our frame. And in his goodness, he has handed these stories down to us as warnings for our benefit, Right? And this is yet another stress point where, where the kingdom of God proves itself to be, I think, completely upside down from, from all the wisdom of the competing kingdoms of, of this world. But see, we, we live in a culture that sees no problem at all in assuming that everybody who came before us is an idiot and the world ought to be happy that we finally arrived. Am I off base on that one? And while I'm sure you can immediately think of a big old long list 
of all the ways that your philosophical and political rivals are guilty of that stuff, the fact that you didn't immediately think of a big old long list of the ways that you're guilty of that stuff proves my point dead on. Just nailed it home. 70 years ago in a book called Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis coined a brand new phrase, called it chronological snobbery. Others today might call it a cultural hubris. But the Bible, man, it just calls it pride. That's all it is. We're full of it. And so were the young church in Corinth. Full of pride. That pride led them to blindly assume that even though past generations of God's people had failed under those temptations, failed under those circumstances, that couldn't possibly happen to them. They knew better. Surely they were stronger. Surely they were smarter. Others might have been incapable of avoiding such obvious pitfalls, but we got this, right? So in verse 12, Paul says this. He says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So a couple of chapters ago, Paul told the Corinthians that knowledge alone puffs up, right? Standing tall, sticking your chest out as if if you got it, assuming that, that you're invincible because you got knowledge, it's just a direct ticket to failure town, right? Paul tells them that the, temp- the, the, the temptations that they face, they're common to all of God's people. They're, they're no easier than generations past, and, but listen, nor really are they any harder than generations past. Our chronological snobbery rears its heads in, in, in all kinds of different ways. And in fact, it's ingrained so deeply that I think we can sometimes even be pridefully sure of ourselves that we have it harder than any generation that's ever come before us. They didn't have to deal with what we had to deal with. It comes out all over the place. But the temptations that we face are common to all of God's people. And it's because a sinful human heart, it, it always is affected the same way whenever it's presented with the opportunity to sin. We're inclined towards that sin. Always. We're bent towards that sin. And unless God gives us new hearts and new desires to love him more than we love that sin, it's never going to change. You can't white-knuckle your way out of this. You can't talent your way out of this. What you need is a new heart. The gospel is not now, nor has it ever been. Try a little harder, and then maybe next time God will actually be pleased with your effort. The gospel The good news is that God takes dead men and he makes them alive. He takes dead men and he makes them alive. By his grace, he gives us a heart of flesh where there was previously only a heart of stone. And new hearts 
that are now enabled to love what he loves and hate what he hates, right? uh, and that are now enabled to, to, to love what they used to hate and, and hate what they used to love, see that temptation as, as the sin that it, that it actually is, something to, something to run away from, right? And something to, to flee from with all of the strength that they have in them. Yeah, but I don't have a lot of strength. Me neither, man. I, I, I know. What's better, though, is that God knows, too. He knows. And he's accounted for it. He's faithful and good. He saw it coming. He walks with you through it and provides for it. And so in verse 13, Paul tells us that God won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, which, let's be honest, might just be the most misquoted and misrepresented verse in the entire Bible. So much so, it made the cut for I don't think that means what you think that means series a couple of years ago. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 often gets reworded as God won't give me more than I can handle. And the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves takes that misrepresentation and just runs with it towards the wrong end of the field. It assumes that because God is so infatuated with me and would never dare to, to overwhelm me, if I'm, if I'm going through a hard time right now, well, then that must mean that, that, that God knows that I've got enough in the tank to eventually pull it off. So he's just sitting back on the sidelines rooting me on from there. He knows that I've got the potential. He's just waiting for me to figure it out too. It's a self-righteous pride repackaged in a Christian veneer. Sold to us all over again. But Paul didn't say that God won't give us more than we can handle. What he said was that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist that temptation. The focus isn't on God's lofty opinion of our ability to overcome hardships. The focus is on the seriousness of sin and God's tender faithfulness to his people. It was a God-focused passage, not a you-focused passage. God is good, and he shows his great love for you by providentially working to always provide a pathway of escaping temptation. And just like he has never not been faithful in all the other things he said he's been faithful in, he has never not been faithful in that either. This means that there's never been a single moment in your walk with Jesus where you were forced into sin. Not one. There's never been a single moment where you faced a no-win situation, a, a moral, ethical dilemma where your only options available to you were sin A or sin B. There's always, according to the Bible, there's always a righteous pathway out C. It is always there. Now, don't let the prosperity gospel creep back in through the side door either. That righteous pathway might come at extreme cost to you. It might cost you something incredibly dear to you. It might even cost you your life. But it's always there. It is always there. 
Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that sounds really nice, but surely there are times that God takes a, a, a more relaxed view over, over things because the situation probably calls for it, right? Like, I, I mean, obviously we should avoid the, the, the major sins that are out there when, when it's clearly an option available to us, but aren't there occasions, like, wouldn't you argue that there are occasions here and there where it would be advantageous to let things slide for a little while because it'll gain us some other good thing, Right? And this is a question that missionaries often have to answer. This is a question that missionaries often have to answer. How involved can I get in the sinful practices of a person I'm attempting to reach with the gospel? How involved can I get? And while it's a common question, the truth, though, is that there's only one faithful answer. There's only one faithful answer. Ignoring the, the sin of a lost person for a while because you see it as a, as a symptom of a more devastating problem, that, that's a good, mature, missionary posture. Being patient with them as you lovingly press in to share Jesus with them, who, by the way, is the only one actually capable of truly calling them to repentance anyways, that's a biblical approach to approaching that situation. Absolutely. But that situation doesn't look anything at all like actively participating in their sin along with them. Not a bit. Not a bit. A strategic patience on the fringe is a completely different posture than joining in with the sin yourself. And so in verse 14, Paul doubles down. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Paul says, hey, you're sensible folk, you're smart folk, you know better. Deep down, you already know how dangerous that idolatry is. So run away from it, flee from it. Quit playing around, drop the arrogance, treat it like it's actually deadly serious and get out of there. And it's here that we, we begin to see Paul's main target in chapter 10 uh, begin to emerge to the surface, right? Uh, we, we spent the last two weeks, chapters 8 and 9, uh, kind of dancing around the issue of eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols. Uh, there was a market for the secondhand meat after it had been used for the sacrifice. Christians in Corinth apparently were, were buying this meat and, and eating this meat. And so Paul makes it clear uh, that, that the meat all by itself is harmless. It was nothing. That, that, that the statues that the, uh, the meat was offered to, they're just lifeless statues. They're hunks of stone and rock and wood. And so that meat has no intrinsic spiritual value at all. And so the Corinthians had a right and a freedom to eat it. But without even slowing down, Paul also made it clear that not everybody sees it that way. That whether it was because of a lack of discipleship or whether it was because someone had recently come out of a, a lifestyle of, of reverently sacrificing to those idols, participating in idol worship. Paul tells the Corinthians that, that there are weaker brothers out there, and if they wanted to be seen as mature, that would be proven by them sacrificially, lovingly, and willingly laying down their rights for the good of the weaker brother. That if they wanted to be the mature ones in the room, that's the action, that's the posture they needed to take. But if you remember, we've hinted the last couple of weeks that there is another layer down into this issue that goes beyond merely just eating the meat. The Corinthians were sometimes eating that meat in the pagan temples. 
Now, there were a number of reasons why someone in Corinth might go into the, the, the pagan temples, and, and some of those reasons are honestly pretty innocuous. Uh, we live in a secular society that, that, that we, we need a very clear divide between what we perceive as sacred and secular spaces, right? Like, it would be weird for the city of Nashua to have an office in our building. Like, would, it, would everybody be nervous about that? I would be nervous about that. The Corinthians wouldn't have been nervous about that. It would have been seen as an honor uh, in their government's eyes to, to have a, an office down at the pagan temple. That would have been a normal thing. So we feel weird about it in our culture, but the government there wouldn't have felt weird about it at all. So there were certainly innocuous reasons why Christians in Corinth might walk into the, one of the temples, but not all of those reasons were innocuous. Not all of them were Grand feasts were being held in these temples immediately after the pagan celebrations as an extension of the worship that had just happened. And it's clear that some of the Christians in Corinth were participating in those feasts. They may not have been actively making sacrifices to the pagan idols, but they were going to the fellowship meal after it was done. In the temple. So anybody think that the Apostle Paul has some, some, some things to say about this little situation? And so in verse 16, he says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay, so Paul links the action of feasting in the pagan temples with the Christian action of gathering together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He's saying that those two things are more alike than you are aware of. When, when we gather as a body of believers to take the elements of the supper, we are actively participating in the sacrificial death of Christ. Yes, the, the bread and the wine are symbolic pictures for us. They don't become something more than bread and wine when we celebrate together, but neither is that moment some kind of informal snack. There's a spiritual reality to what we're doing in that moment when we gather together to celebrate this special meal as a gathered body as a church. And so, and so like, just like play out the hypothetical scenario. If, if, if there was some kind of, uh, if there was a man who knocked on the door of the office in the middle of the week and he was desperately hungry and all we had down in the kitchen was a bunch of leftover communion crackers and some old juice, like we would happily give that to him. There's nothing wrong with that. It's leftover crackers and juice. Should we let them participate in the Lord's Supper while we're having the Lord's Supper? The answer is no. I'll gladly take them to McDonald's after we're done. But there's something happening in that moment that bears testimony for something. That goes well beyond the elements that put it together. But participating in that meal, we are bearing witness to something and believing something and declaring something to those who are witness. Something is being believed and proclaimed in the action of sharing the meal together that goes far beyond the sum of its parts. 
In the same way, the leftover idol meat, it's just meat. But it's naive to think that the feast at the temple was nothing more than a giant meal. Participating in that feast is believing and proclaiming something as you celebrate alongside those who really believe it. And no amount of, oh no, we're all mature here. It doesn't affect us like it affects them. Is ever going to change that. It says you're actively involving yourself. You're participating in a sacrificial posture, a celebration of, of worship. And, and so we, we've been talking about rites, quote-unquote, for a few weeks now, uh, for a few weeks in a row now. I think, you're, I think you're starting to get the picture. Like sometimes, sometimes rites are, are something that you are free to enjoy with God's blessing. It is God's good gift and shame on any Pharisee who would ever try to take it away from you. Sometimes rights are a good gift from God. And sometimes, sometimes rights are things that you need to lay down because there's something more special to you and more important on the table for you to chase after. You love your brother more than you love your freedom. And so they're an easy thing for you to give up. Sometimes rights are, are something you're free to enjoy with God's blessing. Sometimes rights are something that you need to lay down for the good and the love of your brother. And hear me, sometimes, sometimes rights are nothing more than a cover for something stupid that you shouldn't be doing. Can we be honest about that? Sometimes rights are nothing more than I want to do this and I don't care. Something sinful. Something dangerous. Something in your arrogance will quickly lead to your failure. Nah, we got, we got this. Those others, they were weak, but we're better than that. We're not going to fail like they failed. We're smarter than they are. We're stronger than they were. We got this. What you're doing is playing with fire. And in love for the Corinthians, Paul tells them, no, 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 my beloved, flee idolatry. Run away from it. Run away from it. You don't got it. You're in significantly over your head, and you're about to get burned. And you would think that that would be the hardest thing for people to hear this morning. But then in verse 20, Paul drops a bomb. He says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So Paul makes the argument here that worship of false gods is ultimately the worship of demons. So what, do I have to deal with that this morning? Like, like if, I, if I just ignored it, would y'all let me off the hook? Paul says that Paul says that when the pagans make sacrifices, they're offering, actually offering those sacrifices to, to demons, and, and he is not the first person in the Bible to make that claim. Uh, so did Moses in Deuteronomy 32. So did the psalmist in Psalm 106. Now, does this mean that, that you know, we're talking about some kind of underground satanic cult? No. We're not talking about the kind of stuff that makes up a lot of urban legends. In fact, it, it seems... It seems that those making the sacrifices probably aren't aware at all that that's what they're doing. They're wholly bought in to what they believe is a truth. And they're genuinely devout in a truth that they are 
a perceived truth that they're participating in, but it's just another reality of the very fallen world that we find ourselves living in. In multiple places in the Bible, God is, uh, Satan is known to be the god of this world, right? He's supposedly the prince of the power of the air. He often masquerades as an angel of light. And so one of the realities that people don't ever really think through in, in, in our world, at least from, from my vantage point, is, is just because something is supernatural doesn't mean that God's behind it. Sometimes that's not the case at all. The Bible makes the argument that that false religions are not merely the result of human imagination. There is a spiritual, demonic power to them. Idols, nothing more than a hunk of wood or stone or metal. The meat's never going to be anything other than meat, but let's not close our eyes and pretend we're only playing make-believe here. There's a spiritual reality to what we're dealing with. The Bible makes it crystal clear that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so, uh, I don't know, does it seem like a good strategy to you to give some people something that's almost like God to chase after? Something that has some things that are very God-like, but ultimately not Him? It's a strategy I would use. And so Paul, so casually here, he just goes, hey, I, I don't want you to be participants with demons. Just looking out for you guys. And in verse 21, he says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul says, regardless of how little thought you might have put into this, and regardless of how arrogantly you might believe that you're invincible, what you're really doing here is playing with cosmic realities. And while you're certainly in danger of getting your tail kicked by a force that's stronger than you, what you should really be worried about is the jealousy of a holy God. That's what ought to to to. to Catch your attention right there. Yeah, yeah, you're outclassed and outgunned by your enemy, but your God, he ain't happy about it either. Hey, how long do you think that the righteous judge of all the earth will sit back and watch his people bearing his name just make a wreck of things? You think that stirs anything in him? Yeah, he's patient, far more patient than we ever have deserved. Um, but how long exactly do you think that patience will last? And people often get caught up in the idea of God being jealous. That I get it. It sounds really unattractive to a modern ear, but I really think that's only because most modern people have a sad, sinful view of what jealousy is. It, um, to watch what you cherish be maligned and abused, and then just to sit back and act like that doesn't matter, that, that's not love. That's heartless right? It ought to, to, to watch that play out and not be stirred to do something about it. Maybe there's a really, really good type of jealousy. Love as biblically defined, and we all know that there's a way of defining it in an unbiblical way, but love as biblically defined, as rightly defined, is moved to a holy jealousy when the beloved is in danger. Anything less than that is just an act of selfishness. God loves you. 
No, I mean, he actually loves you. And maybe there are some times in your life which you can point to where you've tossed that phrase around in a way without really meaning what you said, but God never has. Ever. And maybe you have helped sully the definition of love in our culture, but God has never, ever, for eternity past and eternity to come, ever been guilty of that. Ever. And so, What is a perfectly loving God to do when the beloved is in danger of wrecking things? I I think you would much, much rather him act jealously in that moment than leave you to wallow in your sins. Right? It would be devastating for him to say, oh, no, 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 I'm much too secure in who I am to to ever be too bothered by this. I don't want them to think I'm overcommitted here. I don't want them to ever think that I'm too invested in whatever, put limits on their freedom. I'll just sit back from here and hope they get it right. You don't want God to have that posture towards you. You want him to to dive in deeply and pursue. God has a righteous jealousy that drives him to protect what he has placed his affections upon. And so Paul asks the Corinthians here, hey, shall we provoke him to act on that jealousy? We're going to just keep poking him until he does something about it? How long are you going to continue in your immaturity? Like we can all make fun of the, the teenage boy who, you know, insecure and, you know, gets sinfully jealous over his imaginary competitors. We, we, we ought to, you know, point that out and laugh at it and mock it in our world. But, hey, you know what's way more insufferable? The teenage girl who knows what she's doing, willingly flirts with real competitors because she has freedom. And she doesn't think her boyfriend ought to get too worked up about things, grow up a little bit. Way more insufferable. I would submit that if you really do struggle with the idea of a jealous God, the sticking point is not God's character. The sticking point is that we're not mature enough to understand what kind of love that sometimes needs a jealous moment. Our view of love has fallen so far down below what it actually is that we don't have a definition for a righteous jealousy anymore. But you know, we could always just choose to shut down our nonsense before it actually has to get to that point, right? I mean, that's an option available to us, I, I thought. It sounds crazy, but just, it's just spitballing. So what, like, what in the world are we to do with this, right? Like, like how in the world do you possibly respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I, I think our response is the same as it, as it is every single week. We we repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text. And man, I think this week, I think he's showing us that he has been lovingly patient with a lot of our nonsense. Right? Sinful hearts, at least mine does, we have a talent for taking things that are clearly out of bounds for God's people and slowly but surely chipping away at them and redefining them here and reshaping them there until there's something that not only do we believe that God would permit, but something that maybe we ought to celebrate. That's what happened in Corinth. Look at these rights we get to enjoy. Isn't our God good to us that he would give us so much freedom? 
Why would he ever be concerned with such a thing as participating in the worship of false gods? We're free in Christ, don't you know that? And sometimes, sometimes rights are nothing more than a cover for something stupid that you have no business participating in. Something sinful, something dangerous, something that in your arrogance will quickly lead to your failure, but in God's goodness to us, he has given us the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. And in God's goodness to us, he has given us the example of the immature in Corinth as a warning for our benefit. God knows our frame, truly knows our frame, and we are just as prone to wander as they were. And so he's, I think he's showing us this morning that, that, that listen, we don't have to continue down that pathway. The, the opportunity for repentance is freely available to us this morning. And so if, if that's you, like, like we want to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to pray. We're going we're gonna to sing. That's a, that's a moment set aside specifically so God's people can hear his word and do something with it, to, to begin to put action to what he is stirring inside of you. That moment is for you, but listen, if you want somebody to talk to, I'm here. I'll be down front. If you're watching this online, you can use the contact form that's linked in the video description. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. And listen, I'll be honest with you. This text doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, if you're on the outside of his kingdom looking in. right? It's, kind of a, it's written to God's people dealing with something that God's people often deal with. But I really think that that's what you need to grab a hold of this morning. God has a people. God has a people. What we're talking about here is not just another option on the the landscape of religious games that people like to play. Religious actions can't be all thrown into one pile for the conscientious shopper to pick what they want out of a la carte. God has a people. And he He's called them to himself, and he has saved them by his grace, and he walks in loving relationship with them, and he warns them to flee from danger, and, and, and he disciplines them when it is necessary. Just like the Israelites that, that weren't allowed to enter into the promised land, it wasn't because they didn't get to see some really cool spiritual moments. They refused to know and trust the God who lovingly made himself known. The God who repeatedly showed them his trustworthiness. And hear me, this same God wants to make himself known to you today. He doesn't want to give you religious moments. He wants to give you himself. To walk deeply with him forever. The Bible teaches that all people are separated from God because of their sin. And and the just punishment for that sin is death. But the Bible also teaches that God loves us when we were unlovable. He loves us with a great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive in Christ. He sent his son who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute, a perfectly sinless substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as the vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness and as the king who conquered both sin and death he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith 
to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that in this moment. You can respond to God's word by responding to Jesus. And so, listen, I, I would love to be helpful to you. You don't, you don't need me. You, God wants to give you himself, but man, I'd love to walk with you and help you make sense of what that response of faith looks like. And so if that's you, I'll be down front. Use the contact form, whatever you got. But whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 10. I'll confess that I got some knowledge. And I feel like I'm pretty strong. I've even got some examples in my back pocket of how other folks failed. But it's clearer and clearer to me as I press into your word that I also got a lot of pride. I got an invincible streak running all the way down to the core of me. And God, while you have clearly given us things to freely enjoy and you've clearly given us things that should be easy for us to set aside even though they're good, there are also things that I call freedoms that never were meant to be. There are things that I think are rights for me that are just dangerous and sinful. Humble me before you. Give me wisdom to see the difference. Pull me in close so that so that I don't wander as far away as examples of the past. And I'm, I'm not strong enough, and I'm not smart enough, certainly not talented enough. But you are good. And you are faithful. And you lovingly provide and you lovingly protect. And so when we find ourselves in this dissonant moment where I'm not sure I want to trust the logic of your kingdom, help me trust that you're better than my logic. Help me trust that you are truth. That yours is the only kingdom that's actually right side up. Father, for those who don't know you yet this morning, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom in this very moment? By your goodness and by your grace, would you make your name more famous? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.